0: Hi, this is Liz Nord, and you're listening to the No Film School podcast. Stephen Robert Morris believes that the film industry is broken. Time and money are wasted at every step of the process, leaving filmmakers less with which to actually make our films. Fortunately, he also believes we can fix it. In fact, he believes this so strongly that after directing the documentary Amanda Knox for Netflix, he went to Oxford Business School to learn how we can run our sets more like businesses, and then he started the company Observatory with an Oxford classmate to do just that. Terms like lean principles and simultaneous processes probably aren't familiar to most filmmakers, but if you put some basic business sense into place, you can make your films a whole lot cheaper and more efficiently. And if it sounds cold and calculated, Remember that ultimately, this is all in service of having your film reach the most people and have the greatest impact possible. In this practical conversation, Stephen Morse breaks down some business school lessons that we can all apply to make our films in the most efficient ways possible. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to the No Film School podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So let's start just by giving your spiel. What's your company? What are you up to?
1: Sure. So my company is called Observatory. Observatory. We are based in both New York and London, England. And though, let's say a couple of years ago, I really would have said my focus is documentaries, now we've expanded into fiction, we've expanded into other formats for TV shows, and we're just really open to collaborating with anyone who has great ideas.
0: And I know a little bit about the company because you've written for No Film School, but I would say you're not just a regular production company. You have a real kind of underlying philosophy, so can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Sure, so the underlying philosophy is that I try to be as efficient as possible in everything that I do. Uh, Hollywood is notoriously inefficient. There was just a great article that Nick Bilton wrote in I believe Vanity Fair this weekend about the inefficiencies of the film business. And that's all the stuff that I hate. I hate inefficiency. I, I Nothing makes my skin crawl like inefficient filmmaking. So when I work on projects and the people who work with me on projects, we just make sure that we're doing everything as efficiently as possible. This means everything from saving time to saving money and all that's in between. <laughs> um,
0: and just stepping back, the projects that you've worked on so far, um, tell us a little bit about, you know, what people might be able to see or know about?
1: Sure. So the first project I produced was Amanda Knox. And during that time, I was working as a journalist at the beginning of that project. And then I started working at startups while I was making that project and working for startups where you know you have to be efficient and you get a couple million bucks from some investors. And if you don't spend that money properly, you're out of a job. It's it's You have to keep building, building, building. So I'd say that working for startups while making the Amanda Knox documentary that Netflix eventually bought and will be a Netflix original for all of perpetuity. Um, That's what taught me about how to be efficient originally. Then I went to business school at the University of Oxford, and that's where my mind really opened up to what could be done to
0: reform the film industry. Did you go to business school thinking you were staying in film or thinking you were moving on to some business, other business venture?
1: I went in with an open mind, but while I was there, I just really could see every time that someone would talk about, it, here's a problem and here's how to solve it, I'd think, why has no one tried to solve this problem in the film business before? Why is film so ancient? Why has technology that has hit our lives in every other way not really hit us in the film business? Yes, you could argue that Netflix – does streaming and internet distribution, and that is technology, which it is. But there are so many other elements of this film industry that are so archaic. It is wild.
0: So give me some examples. Like, I know that you sort of feel like the industry is broken. How?
1: Yeah, so I'd say just there are processes that take so much time and money. This idea of having sales agents and distributors – to get your projects out there, to get them to Netflix, Hulu, to get them to anyone who needs it, that's such a waste of 30 percent of your money that and I've 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 paid that money. And when you think, oh, you're just paying a middleman to to distribute your product and then they're taking twenty or thirty percent. And if you have a sales agent and a distributor on board, then there goes fifty percent of your, your budget oh, that is, that is so crazy. And this is for human labor. It's not like it's an automatic process. Um, I argue, though, that you could even somehow blame film festivals for this inefficiency where you have this circuit and everyone has to apply manually and send their film in. And you have human curators who are deciding what can go in and not go in. And
0: then, and then you then wait you w- six months to find out if you're in and then you play it there for a year before you can, you know, get it out there. Exactly.
1: That is exactly what I'm talking about. And when you think about efficiency, that is not efficient. It's great to win film festival awards, but that for many filmmakers does not translate to money in their pockets. So that is a future that I hope will, will exist where people can have award success and also financial success at the same time.
0: I can't imagine one of our listeners who would disagree with that, you know, that hope. Um, So then, so you made Amanda Knox, and that was a more traditional process and took a while, right? Took several years.
1: That was a traditional process. It took about five and a half years from the time I landed in Italy and started meeting with Amanda and her family members until the time it was distributed on Netflix in September 2016. That was a process I learned so much during that process, but I also learned all of these things that I never, ever, ever want to do again. I never want to spend five and a half years making a film. I mean, that said, if you have amazing films and you want me to help you out with them, I'm happy to come in later and, and package it. And I'm doing that now for a couple of people. You know, they, they've they've been working. I have one guy who's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man. His name is Dr. Victor Pineda. He lives in Berkeley, California. He's a professor at UC Berkeley, Victor is also, and this has nothing to do with his personality, is he's severely disabled and uh, it's it's a wonderful story that he has where he's been able to travel all around the world. He is the most inspiring person. He would never want to be called inspiring, but he is inspiring to 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 everyone who meets him. And Victor has 850 hours of footage and he just kind of hands me this footage and now I have to figure out what to do with it. And it's a process and it'll be an amazing process and super fun. Um, but luckily, I can come into that process a little later now and not at the
0: beginning. But then there was this, yeah, so that's kind of like, you know, your whole process that you learned from Amanda Knox and then you went to business school. And so then your second big feature, Trump, right, was like a whole different process than Amanda Knox. So yeah.
1: So Eurotrump was really interesting. Um, you know, Donald Trump won this election in the United States, taking much of the world, me included, by surprise. Uh, My business partner, Maria, and I were utterly in shock, as were probably many other people around the world, that Donald Trump won. However, then we thought, where could this happen next? So we looked a little bit in the future, looked at an election timeline on Wikipedia, and we saw where was the next big election going to happen? And the answer was the Netherlands. And there was a guy named Geert Wilders, who people call the Dutch Donald Trump, who was running for office. And I just reached out to him cold. And I've done this before. I, I did the same thing with Amanda Knox. I just reached out cold to her family and her her friends. And I reached out to Geert Cold. I reached out to his press secretary, Cold. And a week later, I'm in his office having a one-on-one meeting with him. Luckily, I was based in London. So it was you know an, a one-hour flight to Amsterdam as opposed to having to cross an ocean to meet with him. But we met. And then three days after that, we started filming with him. So it was... Uh, An amazingly fast process, but it was an excellent process. In that film, we chronicled him for four months, three months leading up to the Dutch elections and then the month following the election as well. Uh, It was really wonderful because Geert lives behind 24-7 security because of comments he's made about Islam he has severe, serious death threats on his life. That is one thing that everyone from his security to even the journalists who disagree with him agree on, is that the threats on his life are serious and real, totally credible, 100% credible. So uh, spending time with him and, and his security staff and everyone around him was just an utterly fascinating experience. And you get to really understand that, one, there is a human underneath him, even though, He comes across, you know, in one way to the media and the press and, you know, is disliked by many people around the world. Um, But there is a softer side to him as well. And also you understand that his situation is quite sad, actually, that anyone that has to live behind layers of security, you never really want that even on maybe your worst enemies, but maybe not anyone other than them. Yeah.
0: But in terms of the process, I mean, the film sounds fascinating, and it's going to be out there, right? It's it's already on Viceland, am I right? It's on
1: Viceland in a few countries now, and it will be on Hulu in the United States at the end of March.
0: I can't wait. Um, but And now I have so many questions about that film, because first of all, what does that outreach look like? I mean, if you've been successful twice with really high-profile people who probably have you know some barriers between the press and them
1: honestly, it's be yourself. That's that's what I tell everyone. Originally, when I started with Amanda Knox, I was a journalism student. I had nothing. I had no credibility in the world. I'd made a a documentary while I was in college. I made a feature documentary, but 28 people saw it. It wasn't like it was super popular (laughs) at all. And um, I think it's just reaching out, being yourself. And sometimes people will click with you. Obviously, there's hundreds of other people I've reached out to over the years who have never even responded to my emails. And I think that that's, you think about the successes, but but it takes, you know, 100 failures to get to a success. So so I think the idea of just reaching out cold, you should try to reach out when you have a connection to someone, if you have a second degree connection to someone, or if you have some reason why with Amanda Knox, it was just, oh, I'm, I'm a young American student in Europe and I understand that you were also a young American student in Europe. It was, it was that kind of thinking similarly. And then with, with Wilders, it was just like, wow, I think your election is really interesting and... Maybe if you watch this Amanda Knox movie, we treated her quite fairly and you always complain that you're not treated fairly by the press. I will do my best to treat you as fairly as possible in this film. And I think that's another thing that sets this film apart from other films is that it's so easy to make a film with, let's say, a liberal slant where you're saying, "Okay, come on, fellow liberals, let's watch this film. Let's all cheer on that we hate this fascist leader person and that's an e- that is an easy film to make but a more challenging film to make is a film that kind of presents a nuanced point of view and then you'll obviously get criticism from the far left say why did you not make this man appear like a horrible monster and i'll say because when you talk to him and you get to know him a little bit he's not a horrible monster and then so so you're always going to get criticism. That's one thing that you need to always know from Amanda Knox people, from the people who assume she's guilty. We call them the guilters. They'll say <laughs> you made her seem innocent. And then other people will say, oh, she still seems guilty. They could wa- people can watch the same movie and come away with totally different opinions. And that I know now is fact. I don't know what the underlying psychology behind that is.
0: Well, I think that's when you know you, you did something right, actually.
1: I hope so. Um, <laughs> I hope we did something right. But but there are people that watch Euro Trump. It depends where on the political spectrum you started. If you were center left to begin with, if you were far left to begin with, maybe you'll swing a little more to the right. Maybe you'll be a little more empathetic of him. It's 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 just so wild. And, and especially with Amanda Knox as well. British people, for example, were exposed to anti-Amanda Knox media for seven years. They got that she was the devil and and all these horrible things about her every day. And then when some of them watch me, the they're like, oh, wow, I, I've totally changed my opinion on her. But other people watch the same movie and they say, oh, she's so guilty. So it's <laughs> just really weird. Yeah.
0: Um, OK, so so the big like the kind of like point I'm eventually getting to with all this is that there was such a big difference in process between Amanda Knox and Eurotrump. Amanda Knox was traditional, took five years, you know, did get success in the doc world, but with a Netflix pickup and everything. But then Eurotrump was like conceived, shot and distributed in less than one year. How what happened in between? What did you learn?
1: Yeah, no, <laughs> I learned about process and making things efficiently um, and about simultaneous processes, I think is is a really interesting thing right? Like while we were shooting Wilders, or sorry, Eurotrump, as, as, as the film is called now, originally it was called Wilders, but then we changed it. Oh, it's only called Wilders in the Netherlands now. Uh, and it's Euro Trump everywhere else. Uh, we realized that if you are editing while you're shooting, if you're doing X while doing Y, there's no reason to wait. It's just always about being three steps ahead and thinking, okay, what is next in our process? What is going to hold us up in a week, what is going to hold us up in a month, and if you can get paperwork started on insurance, and you can get little things done here and there, and know who your lawyer is already before you need that lawyer, and, you, oh, God, hiring lawyers is the worst part of this business, because you need specific lawyers to do every little thing for you, and different people have different areas of expertise, but it's just a bad matter of knowing processes, and then, and again, I know these processes now, having done it once or twice already, but... Staying on top of that is, I think, the most important thing.
0: So, I understand the idea of simultaneous processes. Like, of course, that makes sense. But I think a lot of uh, a lot of our listeners might say, "But I'm one guy. I'm one gal. You know, how do I edit while I'm out there shooting slash producing this thing? And you know, uh, what if my story takes place over five years? How do I shoot it in a year? You know, these kind of."
1: There are some five-year stories, right? Like Icarus. It was this awesome documentary that clearly took time. I can name a hundred other ones that that have taken time, and I don't think there's anything that you can do about that. That's just a time situation wiener. Oh man, they just got so lucky in terms of time and all this other stuff. But um, what? So, so in terms of choosing your story, you can choose a story that's going to take place. You know, do a, a story about Coachella, or do a story about some other festival and then, okay, you're going to shoot the whole thing in the five days of that festival and then you're done. Will that be as deep or as gratifying as another story? Quite possibly it won't be, but maybe it will be. So I guess it's really a personal choice as to what kinds of things interest you. For me, I saw an election, I saw a clear cut act one, act two, act three in that election. And, you know, that, that worked out very well for us. Could it have been derailed a million times along the way? Absolutely. There's no—I do not think I have a magic bullet or anything that can make films happen. It's, it's, it is some skill and some luck at the same time.
0: And what about trying to run simultaneous processes if you have a really small or solo kind of group?
1: Sorry, I didn't answer your question, which was was that small or solo group, I think— Working solo on a project is crazy. Uh, I'm not saying that there aren't amazing projects out there that are started by one person, but film is a team sport. And you try to get the best people around you to work with you. Uh, If you can't do that, then you probably shouldn't be a director because that's what a director does. They do other people. And it's funny. I was on set two days ago. We were filming a, a cooking show. And I wasn't doing much on set. And I realized I wasn't doing much on set because I had hired all the right people around me to be doing their jobs. And I I thought I used to say that being a good producer is not letting anyone say no to you. But now I have an addendum to that, which is also being a good producer. And I was only producing this one. I wasn't directing this one. Being a good producer is meaning that you can sit around and do nothing because everyone else is doing what they have to be doing during the process.
0: And because you set it all up to run smoothly.
1: So I think that is what, what people should do. Um, Can you do something yourself, direct and produce yourself? Of course you can. There are people that if you're telling a family story about your family, then you're probably the only person who can get those intimate moments and and do that process successfully. However, you never see a film with one name in the credits at the end. Uh, So I really can't emphasize that enough. We have amazing post-production people who we've used. I have different camera people. There's so many people out there who make who make a film happen. It can never be done alone.
0: Yeah. So without even knowing it, you segued us so nicely because you um, you wrote this fantastic article for No Film School about things that you learned in business school that you then sort of started applying to your work in film. And the first one was run simultaneous processes. So you set us up. Um and I, I noted them before our conversation. So the second one you Thank had God you noted them. <laughs> <laughs> the second see producer always prepared. The second one that um you had noted was no deal is a deal until it's a deal, which I feel like needs to be said in like an old timey
1: <sighs> accent. Yes.
0: But tell us tell us what that is about.
1: Yeah, so honestly it's based on a true story uh, where the BBC wanted to buy our Euro Trump project and we had gone so far along with them. They'd sent us contracts and we were negotiating those contracts. And then uh, yeah, yeah just bureaucracy, bureaucracy, bureaucracy. The, essentially, the woman we were dealing with, the executive we were dealing with, she went on vacation. And then her boss decided he didn't like the project for whatever reason. No. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, there's nothing. You, so, So that was a hard lesson because I'd say for, let's say, three or four weeks. It was actually one year ago today. Probably because I was at Berlin at the film festival when it happened and I was just enjoying the film festival thinking, oh, we have a deal. I don't need to be meeting. I canceled all my meetings with other distributors thinking, oh, we're going to work with the BBC on this. We have a contract already. I don't need to be wasting other people's time or, or taking their money. They're going to finance the rest of this project. We're sitting pretty. We have what we need at the stage. But then that deal fell through. Oh, and it was a hard, hard learning experience for me. Uh, I definitely did not eat much for a month. I was definitely miserable for a month until we found another partner who turned out was Vice to work with on, on this project. But it was just a miserable, miserable experience. And I don't even have any advice to say what, what you could do in that situation other than keep hustling and keep never assume that someone is going to sign with you. There are deals probably that fall through every day for any number of legitimate and illegitimate reasons. Someone might not like the way you look. Someone might, you know, at the BBC, they maybe thought, oh, they're too American or they're too this or that. Who knows what it is? Someone did like us. And then it could be internal politics. Maybe someone there just didn't like something or thought, oh, this is a conservative subject and we should only be making things about liberal subjects. Uh, That's probably what happens. Or if someone (laughs) wanted
0: to undercut you know, one executive wanted to undercut another executive and has nothing to do with the project.
1: Exactly. Yeah, all kinds of things. Exactly. I don't want to speculate, but it was a harrowing experience that, again, far worse things happen to people every single day. But in terms of work, thinking, OK, we have our <laughs> money, we're in, we're set, we're good, we don't have to do anything anymore. Whew, that 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 is about as bad as it gets from my perspective.
0: Well, I know that you said that you don't. Um, really have advice from that. But I'm wondering, will you approach deal making differently or have you approached deal making differently since that experience?
1: I will never sit pretty and sit, you know, happy until the deal is signed, until the initials are on that paper. And then, and then even once the deal is signed, you need to make sure the money's coming through. And that's, that's your job, your distributor's job, your sales agent's job, to make sure that that money is coming through. And, and you, you can't really stop until that money comes through. Yeah. Show me the money. I damn hustling. In, right? Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. Okay, so your next point which is very uh yeah. similar or or almost like the tail end of the story is always be closing, which I like ABC. <laughs> exactly. Um, <yeah. laughs>
1: I think that's Glenn Gary Glen Ross, right? Or did, where's that from? I don't even know who said that for the first time. Maybe well, some it's movie thing. Yeah, maybe not. David Mamet. I, I don't even know.
0: One of the Yeah, anyway. Okay.
1: I think there's some other good Glenn, Gary, Glenn Ross quote for sales that I can't remember right now. It's Always Be Closing. I think it is that one. Is I don't know.
0: It? I feel like it's like one of those other Wall Street, like Wall Street. OK. But yeah. I'm not sure. Anyway.
1: I'll have to Google it later. Um,
0: so, so we're noting that Stephen did not come up with the phrase. But what does it mean in this context? Yeah,
1: it just means that you have to you make a film. That's one part of it. Um, I'm probably better at selling films that I haven't making them. But but if you can't sell a film, I always tell people you can have the best film in the world, but unless you can sell it or have someone who can sell it on your team. And that's 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 what I have now helping friends with selling their films, because if you can't sell it and it's great, then what's what's the point? You just made art for yourself uh, and your friends and your family when it's not going to have the impact that you probably want it to have. So, yeah.
0: You know, it, it you didn't actually write this as a tip, but just in hearing, you know, about your sort of growth over the years and and hearing what you're just saying, it it also seems like part of the what's important is recognizing your own strengths. Like you just said, maybe I'm better at selling films than making them, you know, whether that's true or not, it's it's interesting. I think like we all need to recognize what we're really good at and put our effort towards that in the process and find the right people as you said earlier to fill in the other.
1: Yeah, even so I guess that's why sales agents and distributors exist, because some people are not good at selling things themselves. So so those people probably, I guess, for taking 20, 30 percent, if you would get zero dollars in otherwise, then then they are earning earning you money and earning themselves money at the same time. So I think it's just for people that I don't know if sales agents and distributors will exist in 10, 15 years. People say, oh, good producers can just sell things themselves, which is probably true. However, there are just different skill sets that everyone has, and yeah, it's hard. It's hard to to figure things out.
0: Um. So your next one <clears throat> feels very straightforward, but it's probably not as straightforward. Mind your budget. I mean, it's like duh. But what are some of the big uh, mistakes you see filmmakers, especially newer filmmakers, making when it comes to budgets?
1: Yeah. So I'd say the biggest mistake that people make is they do not add contingency into their budgets. They think, I'm going to make a budget, and I'm going to stick to this budget, and nothing bad happens. This is called Planning Fallacy. There's this really good book called Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, it's, it's a bestseller. It's, it's just a great business book. But it talks in one very small chapter about how everyone plans for best-case scenarios. They never plan for worst-case scenarios. Imagine you've budgeted a 20-day shoot. But then it turns out there's a freak snowstorm and then you have to start three days later. Well, now you're 15% over budget because you've started three days after and your whole crew was ready and you had to feed them and, and house them and you know switch your interviews around and change everything. It's just planning fallacy that everything will go perfectly. So if you don't add contingency into your budget, oof, yeah, mm-hmm. you have to. you have to.
0: What percentage would you recommend?
1: I think it depends on the budget. You know, I'm not going to say add 10% on a half million dollar budget because that's pretty expensive and I'd hope that people would be able to plan things right the first time. That's the other thing. You have to plan things right the first time and know exactly what you need. And that takes a good line producer working with a financial producer, which could be one person in some cases, but not always. But um, yeah, I'd say 10% is normal, but maybe at higher budgets, you could lower that to 75 I would not go lower than 7.5% contingency. And I know what you're probably thinking. Oh, we just raised $50,000 on Kickstarter. That's all we have for this. How can we add in 7.5% contingency? We'll deal with these problems when they happen. Well, they happen a lot. And then that means that most filmmakers are stuck dealing with problems because they didn't plan right. I would say if I raised $50,000 on Kickstarter, I'd make a movie with a $40,000 budget or something like that. And then... And then plan that there's going to be some some areas afterwards that are going to be a bit messy. Yeah,
0: I think that's a great tip. Uh, what what are some other sort of not necessarily budget, but just mistakes that you've seen now that you you can recognize early?
1: I mean, just another simple one is just people forget. To add tax, right, right. We New York is what eight and a half percent sales tax, and people just will budget things without tax, just like a stupid, silly error. It's not. It's, it's It is pretty amateur when you think about it, but, but it might not be on a filmmaker's mind or even on a producer's mind. I guess I'm always shocked at how little most producers understand finance, and it's not necessarily the same skill set, right? There are financial producers, there are creative producers, and there are line producers, and I argue that you have to be a little bit good at all of them. Mm-hmm. I've found people who have stronger skills in one area than another area, but I think you need, it would be beneficial to everyone to know a little bit of all three.
0: Yeah. Um, and then your fifth principle from from our article was hire slow, fire fast, which feels like it comes from another maybe hard lesson learned. Um, not even
1: really a hard lesson. Uh, well, I guess maybe the hiring slow part is from a, hi- a hard lesson. But It just means when you have to hire someone, let's say you have to hire an editor for a project, interview five editors for that project. Get to know them a little bit. Take them out for a coffee. Pay for their coffee, too. They'll they'll like you more if you do. Um, And understand who they are. Understand their time commitments. Understand, do they have a kid at home that needs to be taken care of from 5 p.m. every day? Does that mean they'd rather work from 7 a.m. and end at 3 p.m.? You know, work with people to understand how you're going to work with them. I don't think people I, th- I think people hire too fast in general. Mm. And it's like, oh, we heard this guy is awesome. Well, this guy could be awesome, but is he awesome for this project? That is the other thing that people need to think about. Just because someone has done, you know, you can slap on Emmy nominated, BAFTA winning, blah, blah, blah. Just because someone has done that does not mean they are right for your project.
0: Or like your personality.
1: Or your personality, exactly. Or your team's personality or whoever they're going. And it also might not be you they're working with. So that's another reason to hire slow, right? If I'm hiring an editor and that editor has to work with another director, then I need to make sure that they get along well and they like each other and they understand how they're going to work. Because and that shouldn't be my decision alone. It's it's a team decision. It's total team sport like that's 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 my biggest knowledge. Everything is a team sport. So someone has to fit into that team just like they would anything else. And, and, and when you think about it, making a film is a crazy process, right? Like companies try so hard to hire the right person and then they, they can get those people to work with them for years. But making a film, in many cases, a few months, a couple of months, this, that. And you're trying to find the best people you can. But it doesn't really make sense. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty much true.
1: And then the other part of what you said about firing fast, if someone is giving you problems, it is, again, we're talking about working with people for a few months. So if they're giving you a problem for a week, two weeks, well, that is not going to get better probably over the course of a month or two. And you just have to fire fast. We've had to fire a handful of people because they just haven't worked with our team. And it's nothing against them. They might have tried. They might have not tried. They might have thought... Their expectations might have been different than what our reality is. A lot of people think there's glamour in this business, mm-hmm. which is, I think, the biggest problem. When I tell people 20% of my time is spent in the field, 80% of my time is spent sitting in front of a computer like anyone else working in an office. And that means if I I have to reach out to a ton of people and that means you, I would expect the same from my employees, that they have to go out there and hustle, hustle, hustle because no one we don't have fancy offices, we don't have fancy desks, we don't have benefits packages. If you want to work in film, it is there you could find other jobs that are pay you better than working in film, tons of other jobs to pay you better. However, you do get some forms of, you know, external gratification, but they come at the end of a long road. And I think that is the biggest thing that young people especially do not understand in the film world. Maybe it's different in the studio land, but in the studio land, you're gonna be someone's assistant, 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 until you're 45 years old. Uh, in indie film, the advantage is if you work hard, you'll get somewhere faster.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, so you've, you've sort of you've dropped pieces of this throughout our conversation, and I feel like it brings us all the way around, but you're someone, I think, that has this vision of the future of the industry that might be different from conventional wisdom, and I'm curious kind of what you'd like to see, what you'd, what you'd hope to see happen in the next, you know, decade of your career.
1: <laughs> oh, man, I never really think about it that far in advance. I mean, um, it doesn't
0: have to be about you personally, but more like, you know, these shifts that you kind of keep referring to. Sure.
1: Well, I obviously think, you know, the Me Too movement and other uh, shifts to get more diversity on screen, behind the camera is all quite good things. I'm I'm not complaining about that. Uh, I think that's a step in the right direction for the industry as a whole. Um, I, I also think that technology will continue to play a role in filmmaking in that anyone can have a great camera now, right? Even an iPhone camera is better than a camera that you could rent 20 years ago. And that leads me to believe that story is more important than ever before. Maybe at some point AI, make that process uh, much easier. And maybe I don't know what the film industry will look like once artificial intelligence can predict what kinds of films people want to watch, who's in them using all of these crazy algorithmic things that are probably beyond my comprehension (laughs) right now. But until that happens, I think story is the most important thing. And that You know, I always tell everyone conflict, 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 you need conflict in every story, you need conflict at every point of every story, even in a comedy, you need conflict. And I I think that those are the things that will still rely on good filmmakers, but the equipment is so incredible now that it's not as big of an issue, you know, for $5,000, which is kind of expensive for some people, but a drop in the bucket for many others. You can get anything you need.
0: What about in terms of those things that, you know, you feel are currently kind of broken in the industry? Do you see things getting more efficient, more, you know, better in your opinion?
1: Well, it's funny. So something that a lot of people talk about. I was with a couple people last night talking about this. They were saying unions are such a problem. Uh, and I'm not a member of a union. I've never been a member of a union. Um, but I, I do think that when you look at costs of making films, then you think, Wait, let me just think about this story for a second. Who told it to me? Or did I read it somewhere? Oh, no. I think I read it at the beginning of Nick Bilton's article in Vanity Fair. I wasn't even talking to anyone about it. <laughs> I just read this article where it talked about how someone like flicked a speck of rain off of someone in a scene in Hollywood. And then the union person said, that's my job. And, and then that caused, you know, just unions dominate studio films. And I know nothing about studio films. I've never made a studio film. Maybe I never will make a studio film, but I think that unions are a huge impediment to costs being brought down in that world. So I guess that's the beauty of indie film, right? You can do things for cheap, get a crew together, make it happen yourself. And I think that's awesome. I think that's becoming more and more feasible. So I guess my big vision would be that independents rise up and studio films kind of I don't want to say cease to exist because they're not all bad, uh, but I don't see studios having such an important place in society. Maybe as more, as, as various indie studios come up and then can have marketing budgets and things like that and can do a job almost as efficient as the studios, but maybe with more efficiency. I don't know, it's kind of wild to think that studios control so much.
0: Yeah, probably more than most people even realize. Yeah. Um, so the rise of the indie. That's that's exciting.
1: I mean, I think the technology is there to make that happen, right? And mm-hmm. why why not? <laughs> creative <laughs> people, if all you say all the creative person now needs is, you know, a couple of cheap cameras and a crew and can can do it yourself.
0: Why not? Any uh last minute wise words for up and coming producers?
1: Ooh. Um Producers don't let anyone say no to you. That's that's what I always tell people. That for me, that's a sign of a good producer is not letting anyone say no to you. As I said earlier, it's 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 not literally doesn't mean that literally it does not be a jerk to people. But if someone says no and you're trying to interview someone, say okay, well who else can I call? Who else? Who's the, who's your boss? You know, can I talk to them just for five minutes? It's like sales. It's like anything else. Producing is kind of like sales, where you're trying to get people to a yes. And it's, can I get that interview? Can I do this? Can I do that? And it never stops, really. You could you could be interviewing people all day. It doesn't mean they're all going to be great, but you never know who's going to be great. I wish there was a little more science behind it. But at this stage, it's just not letting people say no.
0: And are there any sort of principles you have for that? Because I, I, that's not easy for most people. It's like if you, you're rejected, you're like, OK.
1: Well, I'd say that's why people who are good at sales are generally good at being producers. Um, and it's not – producing is – some there's some creative elements, but that's just the hard line producing element of it that most people probably probably doesn't get appreciated enough in the industry, but is really necessary, especially in documentaries. You know, and someone says no to you. Oh, we can we use your pizza place on our scripted set? No, you'll say okay, we'll go to the pizza place down the block, and they'll say fine. But in documentary, I think it's the difference between good and great is films is really just the producers getting those extra interviews and getting all this stuff and getting this access. And yeah.
0: So So persistence is another way to put
1: it. (laughs) Is another way to put it. Yeah. Just about being persistent. Um, and I think it is problematic for some people that said also, the other thing I'd say is you can choose your story. Well, right. For example, I would have, I would probably be horrible to make stories about many things. I'm not right for them, and I'm not going to try to make those films about people I don't know, people I different things. Um, and I think, for example, like race, gender, you can use that to your advantage to make films about specific people, specific topics, specific areas where you think you will have an edge as a person. So I think that that's another way to like play the numbers game to your favor. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Well, great advice. I'm uh, I'm so excited about the upcoming Eurotrump, and I'm excited that you are on your way to the Berlinale, and uh, we'll get to hear all about it.
1: Yeah, sounds great. I'm looking forward to to doing some stuff for you.
0: Thanks, Stephen. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can catch Stephen's film, Amanda Knox, on Netflix, and Eurotrump will be coming to Hulu on June 30th. If you liked this conversation, come back every Thursday for our Indie Film Weekly News Show that fills you in on everything you might have missed when you were busy making films, and new interviews every Monday. You can find these by searching for the No Film School podcast in iTunes or your favorite app. Also, be sure to visit nofilmschool.com for useful new filmmaking articles every single day. Meanwhile, stay in touch. You can reach me on Twitter at LizFilm, and we are on Twitter at No Film School. See you on Thursday.